Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2018. Episode 213, Eat, Drink, and Be Merry, Developing Cultural Touchstones for Immersive World Building. Presented by Kirsten Roberts and Jennifer Gutterman. The only one I actually proposed was with my games and education Well, I'm glad that you jumped in. We should talk to them now. We should probably talk to them. Oh, it's like waiting till like 4.05. Like we're, you know, it's like like the camera's not on yet. Hi, everybody. Does everybody know where they are? (laughs) This is not a quiz. There is no grid. There is no grid. So this panel is going to be Eat, Drink, and Be Merry, Developing Cultural Touchstones uh, for Immersive World Building, which is a rather mouthful of a title to say that um, this is basically how to build out your cultures um, while you're creating different worlds, um, be it, honestly, be it fiction writing, be it tabletop. I mean, I've even talked to people about board game design and how to include, as well as uh, LARP, which is kind of my strongest wheelhouse in my background. You can, uh, I teach world building, so to people use this stuff also for uh, creative writing and for uh, animation, movies, uh, TV shows as well. So these are all really good things you can use in all of those things. Um, So my name is Kristen Roberts. Uh, I am a 16 year LARPer. Uh, So I've been, and I've been in different gaming environments probably for 17 or 18 years at this point. I have a blog called Feast in Time. Time is in the herb. Uh, It is a food and entertaining site. So I develop recipes and write about how you can entertain every day and basically teaching you more complicated food things easily. But in addition to that, I also have a consulting service as part of that which is on fictional food and how to include food and cuisine and the things we're going to talk about here uh, into your world building. And I'm Jennifer Gutterman. Um, I teach uh, digital and analog game design at Manchester Community College and Hampshire College. Um, I am a concept artist, concept developer, uh, and I also work, uh, I have a board game that's here at uh, Metatopia this year called Operation Coalition. And uh, all the games that I work on are inspired by some world element that I then, you know, do a lot of research about and try to build out and direct it in the way I want to present this world. So that becomes, world building is a huge part of what I do in every aspect, so. So I think just before we we jump into what we're doing, um, how many people here um, are in the process of creating their own worlds or have created their own fictional worlds at this point? And that's awesome. Glad to have you here. How many, um, how many people have been attending any of the world building classes here or have attended world building classes other times? Awesome. 
Um, you may recognize Jen from Queer World Building earlier, which was fantastic. Uh, let's see, so do you wanna talk a little bit about what it means to build a dynamic world again? Yes, so um, a lot of the struggles that people run into when they're building their games or their worlds for whatever they're using it for is they focus on the narrative of the character and they forget that that character is a product of their environment and product of their culture, a product of the things they grew up with, the, the way they speak and the way they, they interact. So um, what world building really is, is making intentional choices about how the world is going to be directed and move through all the different things that will then support your narrative or support your story or support your game elements. Um, it's all about really being aware of what things really are in our existence and how we then view them as the viewer of a, of a world and also as the characters in those worlds. So we have some examples that we wanted to talk about. Uh, specifically, we're talking about uh, slang, which mm -hmm. is Jen's wheelhouse, cuisine, and holidays, which is both our um, areas. But I guess I, I uh, want to start because I've seen every panel run over time, and I want to make sure we actually talk to people. Who here has brought a world that they would maybe like to workshop towards the end? So we make sure we leave some space for that. Anybody? OK. Does anyone Good have any know. specific questions before we get going that, that this panel inspired? That's okay, you don't. But yeah, we just want to make sure we cover place. them if, you know. Uh, mostly the, the area I have trouble with creating is religion. So as long as that gets... We are we talking talk. about that. Okay. Yeah. I, I should add that um, on my background, I actually have a master's degree in Buddhism and Tibetan religions with a comparative religion undergraduate degree. So yes, sure. that's <laughs> I can help with that. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit. We wanted to talk with the language that people use because we think that informs everything from what you're calling your cuisine to what you're calling your holidays. So let's start a little bit with slang. Yeah. Well, so everyone understands what slang is, right? Or colloquialism, which I have a trouble saying. <laughs> so these are words and phrases, turn of phrase that we grow up with that are from, are regionally uh, inspired. They're from popular culture. They're from... Um, family sayings, a way of speaking. And those things have history behind them that develop them. So when people are building worlds and they're like, okay, so this is an alternate history and uh, you know, the Beatles never came to, you know, never came to, oh, across the pond. So then they start talking about, you know, but rock music is this way. Well, how can rock music be that way if there were no Beatles? How can you use that terminology and build on that idea when you've taken out a part of that? So when you are building the um, structure of the words in your worlds, and they use words, those words that are slang can be used to help reinforce the different difference of that world and the otherness of that world. And I would like to draw your attention to my favorite example of that. Has every, anyone here ever heard of the Smurfs? No. So what is Smurfy? Exactly. So Smurfy or Smurf or Smurf along or whatever Smurf you use is a word that they built up in that world that could be anything you want it to be based on the tone or the context of it. So they made an entire language out of one word. So they could get away with saying, well, that's, that's Smurfalicious. 
So they could be like, it's Smurf, it's a Smurf word, but they're referring to a word that we understand as the audience, right? Okay, cool, they all heard of Smurfs. Good. All right, so um, I'm gonna ask you another really you know, esoteric one. Who here has heard of Harry Potter? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Okay. So good. 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 Cool. Have you have you heard of have you have you heard of England? <laughs> okay. So so I want to talk a little bit about Harry Potter. Was Harry Potter is going to come up a lot in the, in this whole thing because there is a lot of world building in the Harry Potter universe, both in the in the books and in the visuals of the movies and so forth. But what they're doing, the Harry Potter universe relies upon the slang of Great Britain that is rec modern slang of Great Britain that's part of it you know this is bloody awful you know that's that's what they're relying upon the next thing they rely upon is the understanding that magic exists and there's going to be weird names for that magic so when the naming of uh, spells came around I was always like why does why do I already know what that means that spell because the word may not be spelled like what we think it's going to be but it sounds like it so the author is using our understanding of reality and language to bend the reality of that word and its meaning. Um, and in addition to that, then there are very descriptive names in the foods that are being used, which you will talk about more, but like chocolate frogs. So some of them are very literal. Like that's a frog, it's a frog. It just happens to be made of chocolate. Or alliteration is used to connect you back to it. So there are, um, there is a moment at the beginning of the introduction of your world where you have to use some sort of uh, mechanism to start building that connection to the audience. So for Harry Potter, we have um, Harry Potter himself, who was not raised among wizards. So everything has to be explained to him. So the function of, of everything being explained to him is how we, the audience, are immersed in what that reality is. We're being taught what, what any person growing up in that world would already know, but we're being taught it with Harry Potter. And then later, Hermione Granger takes over that role taking, of telling, explaining everything as the encyclopedia. So, because when you have someone, has anyone ever uh, had friends or met someone from another country, like a, a really a wildly different country, or even not a wildly different country? Have, have you guys experienced that? When I was in college, I worked at a summer camp, and we had a lot of people from CCUSA, which is an organization that brings people from other countries and pays them very little to work in the United States. Um, but I worked with people from like Australia and New Zealand and South Africa and Korea and all this stuff, and would, it would always be like, this is so weird. Why is it weird? This is totally normal. And they're like, you live in a TV show. I'm like, I don't live in a TV show. What are you talking about? They're like, they're like you have so, such weird things here. Like, like Walmart, what is that? I'm like, well, I don't have poisonous snakes, so I can't, I can't compete with you from Australia. <laughs> but, but we started to understand that my slang and their slang was very different. So that's just geographical location. So what you have to understand is that when you are creating your worlds, you have to understand where your audience is coming from. You have to pick and choose the verbiage you want to use to connect your audience to your world and bridge between their belief in the existence and their suspension of disbelief in your world. So um, like uh, Star Wars, 
there's the whole like religion really of the force and so that a lot of the the, the phraseology used for speaking about the force is used in very is very easily connected to phraseology used in Christian ritual uh, the greetings of you know you know may God be with you may the force be with you you know uh, or go with the force or go with God so the when when the Star Wars like fiction was created it was obviously created with the intention of being uh, deployed to a society that was very familiar with Christianity the same thing with Harry Potter there are Christian religions uh, Christian religious religious uh, uh, rituals and holidays that are happening in Harry Potter, which I'm totally going all over the place. It's okay. But yeah, so Harry Potter, so like they have Christmas and they have a godfather and they have an Easter holiday and have all of these things which are Christianity, but they're not Christians. They're magicians and wizards and and they don't talk about, you know, believing in God. They, they make their exclamations about Merlin, you know. <laughs> But yet they go on Christmas holiday and they go on Easter holiday and they have a godfather and a godmother because that's connecting to a, a very uh, widely accepted portion of the audience that was going to be reading Harry Potter. So that's how you can do those things. But then for the rest of us, we're like, well, they don't have God. Why do they have a godfather? That's, maybe that's just me. Okay. So um, I'm going all over the place. But... I, I want you to talk about Firefly because oh, you want to I, talk about yeah Firefly. because I think okay. you had some really great points on that and it's a kind of different example. So is everyone familiar with Firefly? Is anyone not familiar with Firefly? So the Western set in the far future, post-apocalyptic Earth type stuff. So a couple of things about Firefly. What language do they speak in Firefly? English, English and Chinese. English and Chinese. Why do they speak English and Chinese? Those are the two cultures that made it to space. Well, they speak English because it was, it, was, it was geared towards an English-speaking audience. And they speak Mandarin Chinese because the belief... What? They can curse. Well, they can, that's one of the things. Thank you for doing that. But also the belief that the, the number of people speaking Mandarin Chinese is exponentially growing more and more and more, more so than English-speaking cultures. So then the other thing they can do is they can curse in Chinese and get it past the censors. And they can, um, they can go in between those two things. And a lot of people, especially the time period that where Firefly came out, a lot of people who were watching it were not very, you know, may not have experienced people from other cultures and may not have experienced Chinese as a language in their, in their world. So it, in some ways, a lot of people felt that it sounded very different. So this was a way, oh, this could be the future. It's so different because they're speaking another language that's, you know, on this planet. Or whatever. Um, another thing they could do, another thing they did was that they, they interspersed this use of, of Mandarin with the speaking style of Westerns. So they were taking you out of your like, understanding what the future is going to be like. And they try to really build up this, like, this like, space Western feel. And then they're like, well, what other words can we make up? And one of the things they did was the, what, Gorham? Do you guys remember when they said Gorham? Well, Gorham sounds like goddamn, but they can't say goddamn on TV. So they made a word that sounded similar, that could be said in the same um, emotion, emotive state and the same emphasis that would then connect people back with that word. 
So a lot of this stuff, these are very uh, specific things that are being done to make you react in a certain way as the viewer and as the audience. And it's connecting with parts of you that, that you may not even be aware of. And that's why people really like it, because they can connect with it, but it's still different, and they can suspend their disbelief. Did I get all the things? Yeah. Oh, good. You did. <laughs> it's been a rough day for me. I've been like forgetting things. Like in the moment I'm starting to speak, in the second half of the sentence is gone. She's been really, they've been really harsh on themselves all, all day, <laughs> and it's unwarranted. Um, You're right. <laughs> so, um, coming off of that, I think we can talk about cuisine. And one thing I run into when I've been introducing the idea of bringing food into world building has been. And it was something I had to really think about for myself is that when I think about food, I'm not just thinking about like a scene in a tabletop game where we're going to have a feast on a table, which is I think what you immediately go to. When we think about food, we're thinking about um, your world's environment. We're thinking about its agriculture. We're thinking about um, what the wildlife is that exists there. If we're thinking about um, some kind of alien or, or different world, we're thinking about anatomy and biology and what that means. Um, even if you are based in maybe a futuristic Earth setting or an alternate history setting, it's still very important to understand what is available to you and your characters. And one of the real bonuses of including this coding into your work is you can avoid a lot of exposition about, let's say, scarcity or abundance by simply including small lines about what your world looks like in ways that are familiar to your audience um, and to your, your players. Um, so there's kind of like a... There's kind of like a checklist that you should go through when you're building your world. And don't get me wrong, you don't have to do this in this order in any way. You might have that idea of what you want your finished world to look like, but it's important to know how your finished world got to that point and what you need to do to build to there. So one of the um, first things that you want to look at are your analogs. Um, it's perfectly fine. Does everyone know what an analog is when I say that? So when I say analog, um, it's basically analogous. I'm now. This is a word I have trouble. Anal. Uh, Thank you. That word. That word. I'm not going to say it because I'm not going to figure it out. Um, but it's basically you can compare whatever world you've created with some kind of equivalent in the real world that's familiar to someone else, or even to another fictional universe, right? So, um, for instance, you think about. Um, let's see. Uh, why am I suddenly blanking on Game of Thrones regions? That's bizarre. Those are things that I know. Um, hmm? Dorne. Dorne, thank you. That's the one I was trying to think of. Dorne is very obviously a Middle Eastern analog, right? It, we, we see it in the clothes. We see it in the foods. Um, the other great thing about Game of Thrones is food is a huge part of, of the world. We do see a lot of food um, in the books. There's a lot of descriptions of food to show a lot of different things. Analogs are great. Analogs help you figure out what can exist in your world, what you want it to look like, help what um, adjectives, adjectives you want to use in terms of food, what spices you want to use, what grains are used, what does the food look like. 
But one of those areas, and I don't want to get too much on the on the idea of appropriation in in this panel because I think there's people who can talk on it way better than I can. Um, but I still see in a lot of descriptions, people will use direct references as opposed to descriptive language when talking about food and agriculture. So it's kind of like Thai food, but mixed with this, or it's sort of Middle Eastern, but also like a little, little bit of like Latin American influence. It, so I always, I'm seeing this again and again, and there's nothing wrong with having that as your, your basis for, or when you're describing this to someone, right? When you're trying to sell your game, when you're trying to sell your, your work, like that's, this is how you can get a quick visual. But in your writing, you can use that um, and in your descriptions in a way that's more evocative. And you can call to mind these ideas without having to use those words. And you can be a little bit more creative too. Um, one of the things you need to always ask is, what's, what's your landscape look like? This is what helps you figure out what your analog is. What's the climate? Are there forests? Are there fields? Is it rocky terrain that's all going to affect the types of food that your, um, your characters, your players can interact with? If there's soil, is it arable? Is it not? If there's any kind of alien or fantastic or magical element to your world, giant crystal obelisks that do something with magic all over the place, how does that affect the land? How does that affect food growth? Um, these are all things that, yeah, you don't need to like go and you don't need to write like an entire book about the biology of your world. But if you know, I mean, I, I mean, I would, but you don't have to, but you can throw little, little, little messages right in there. Um, what your landscape looks like is going to inform your wildlife and your, or your agriculture. Um, what kind of life lives on your planet? Are they insectoid? Are they mammalian? Can I talk about an alien creature? Yes, talk about your alien creature. Okay. So I have an alien creature from a world that I built. It was the the world is uh, this race of people are on this out on the ship, and the ship crash lands on this planet. They were not meant to colonize, but they crash land. Their technology no longer works, and generations live there. But on this planet is this creature that is this huge monstrous thing that has the legs of a kangaroo and the body of a great white ape and the fangs of a uh, giant beaver and one hook on one side. So this thing is very territorial and very vicious. So when they, when they see it and are attacked by it, they call it an evil hooked bastard. So eventually, as time passes, they, they you know, do what we all do, and the evil hooked bastard becomes EHB. And then eventually EHB becomes Ebb, and that's now the name of the creature. The creature is the Ebb, because that we, that's how naming happens culturalized. So, um, but when you're thinking about like the creatures on your planet, how do they affect the people around them? So that creature then affected how they, they protected themselves and how their, their descendants protected themselves and how they then built further warrior-cased people. So yes, I love the evil hook bastard. <laughs> Um, and then once we and once we move from what your agriculture is going to look like, because that's a huge thing. Most cultures have some kind of grain, but does your culture have wheat? Does it have the right environment to grow wheat? If it doesn't, you're not having the same kind of bread that you would find, say, in a wheat-growing country. Maybe you only have something like a corn-based maize or a flatbread 
Maybe you don't have anything at all like that. And I'll go into some specifics on these. But it's important to know what would or would not actually exist in the environment that you've created. Um, and this, uh, a few examples of this, we can talk about um, how important food is uh, in worlds. One, hobbits, right? How, I think hobbits have, you know, really influenced, of course, we know so much fantasy to the point where even people who aren't huge Tolkien fans under, know the idea that hobbits have multiple meals. And this kind of ideas of food and feasting is a big part of those characters' lifestyle and beco becomes shorthand for what hobbits enjoy in life, right? So we can talk about how much they love food and parties, and it shows that they are the kind of, of, of a culture that focuses on those ideals as opposed to other cultures in the world. Um, Game of Thrones, as I mentioned, is a huge example and one that I, I use with caution because Game of Thrones has done such a great job of creating beautiful analogs that are unique to that world, but still familiar to us, like Dorne, like um, all, of our, all of our northern areas. It's very um, northern European style foods. Um, it's stuff that's only going to be in cold environments. They're not growing anything. Everything is being imported to them. That's an important thing to keep in mind, issues of scarcity. Um, but I caution it because I've actually started to see some people while they're creating worlds using Game of Thrones as their analog, which is dangerous because if you don't know what Game of Thrones is analoging from, you're bound to start getting yourself confused and you're, and you're gonna be a little repetitive. So if you wanna do something that's kind of like Dorne, you're better off looking at what Dorne's based on, right? Look at, look at Morocco, look at North Africa, look at um, all these areas in the Middle East and pick out those things that you think are important to your world that, that kind of say Dorne to you, right? Like these are the things, this is why I like it. And reconfigure it again, mix up those elements make sure you're actually looking at those individual pieces as complex cultures. Because that's the other thing we run into a lot is, oh, that's our Middle Eastern culture, right? That's our Asian culture. Oh, and here's our culture based on a nomadic people that's often using a slur to describe them. <laughs> it's derivative, one. <laughs> and on top of that, it usually ends up being just very full of stereotypes that none of us actually want to be using. And it's a fine line to find that area of being familiar to your audience so that it's evocative, so that they can get a clear picture of what they're doing, so that they can play their characters correctly, so that they can love this awesome world you've created for them with small details without um, veering too, too much to relying on these assumptions that they might have about the world. Um, one way that you can that food can be really important in a way that I don't know. I had a really great conversation with someone, and they didn't think that food was, they had a specific idea of how they thought food was involved with their story. It was like a certain meal within a religion that, that was used. But as we started talking, it's a post-apocalyptic world, we realized that the main story, one of the main themes of, of what she was doing was on scarcity. And if, if a main theme is on scarcity, well then we don't have to just have your characters talking about how there's a lack of food, right? 
we started talking about, well, what's this environment look like? It's post-apocalyptic, so it's based in the real world. I was like, you don't have to say. You never have to tell your audience where it is, right? Like, if you want it to be ambiguous. But what are you thinking it is? Okay, they're thinking of this climate. Here's a, here's a kind of plant that I know could still survive in a post-apocalyptic environment. Um, apples are actually highly adaptive. They can continue to grow and adapt to different things in a very bizarre way. Um, so let's let's use those. That's also base of civilization in America. You grew apple trees someplace and that meant that you owned the land. There's all these all these ways you could tie into it. And we realized that this idea of scarcity versus um, you could talk about scarcity in the people working the orchards and describing these kind of semi-fallow, like think about the way apple trees look, they look pretty creepy. So you can kind of like talk about that and, and create this imagery using that. On top of that, um, look at Star Trek versus Star Wars. Star Trek, we have replicators, right? We can produce any amount of food for any amount of people at any time. And they do talk about that in different parts of the series, right? Where you find worlds that they could really use that and they can't share it because of the Prime Directive, things like that. On the reverse, Star Wars has food capsules, the Jedi and Sith carry on their belts. You always see them. It's like part of, you know, cosplay now. And they're like that big. And then you have um, food rations. And this ties again also into a religious aesthetic as well, if you think about it, because you have the Jedi who are supposed to not be indulging in things, right? So yes, their food's not going to have flavor. It's not going to be interesting. You have the Rebel Alliance who are at war, so they're using military rations as their food. Even if you think about when Luke goes to um, Dagobah, and Yoda is actually making some kind of soup and the idea of making something from scratch is like an anathema to Luke. He's, he's totally disgusted by this idea of not eating just his rations in a little box. That says a lot about your people. And then we're gonna, I think holidays and religion is the next thing unless anyone has any questions about agriculture and what grows. Uh, I mostly just wondered if there were any resources that you might, um think to, that are good for learning about the intersections between climate, culture, either in the real world or in some sort of fictional world? So, so to be honest, um, when I started, when I kind of thought I'm going to do this whole um, consultation on fictional food, it's because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So it does exist in the fact that you could look into culinary history on any area of the world, and there was a lot of great scholars out there doing um, some really cool things. Um, the Botany of Desire, I'm forgetting the name of the author. He does, he breaks down four. Pollen? Yes, thank you. Yeah, Michael Pollan. I love him. Um, he can get a little political as a warning, but Botany of Desire isn't. He takes um, four or five different um, agricultural things uh, that represent different areas of the world. So one is apples, so something that's edible. One is... Um, tulips, something that's aesthetically pleasing to the eye, uh, and one is marijuana, so something that is, you know, um, thank you, yeah. And he goes through how humans have, his, he's, his focus is how have humans adapted these um, strains of living things to be what they are today, and how, we, how it also has allowed those species to thrive in exchange 
so it's a um, reciprocal relationship. But see, that is one that if you just want to think about these ideas in a broader sense, it's entertaining, and I really like the audiobook. <laughs> so if you want to listen to it in your car, there's a lot of really interesting just stories, and, and if you like history and, and that kind of stuff, I, I find it fascinating. But it might help trigger some of those thoughts, even though they're very specific. In addition, you can look at um, indigenous cultures from those uh, locales throughout history, and what what uh, obstacles they face and what push them, pushes them through their existence. So why why were the indigenous people of North America nomadic? Why were the Vikings always looking for something different? Why did they go to Greenland? Why did they go to Iceland? Um, why did why are why is a culture so uh, wrapped around um, fishing or like having the sea or dealing with the sea versus a culture that's all about the desert? So the physicality of their locale will affect indigenous people and they have developed through necessity and also the development of their culture how to interact with that. Like uh, as, a, as a, the human animal wants to explain things away, whether it's with superstition or religion or science or whatever. And throughout history, you can see how different cultures respond to changing ideas. And that can help you as well. Fine, changing environments. And changing environments Absolutely, as well. Absolutely, yeah. So the last thing we really want to talk about would be religion and holidays. Yep. And cuisine really ties into this very strongly. Um, when you look at uh, culinary history and you look at religion, they're actually very strongly tied. Um, a lot of doctrines of religion do focus around food, um, what food can and can't be eaten, eaten how it is eaten, sacrifice and ritual. Um, some cultures will sacrifice a whole animal, others will put it on an altar and then consume it communally. These are all things that can inform your culture and it comes from various parts of the environment again. Um, I know when, when I have done some research on um, cultures in India, it's, it's very different um, when you're looking at some of the really ancient rituals, which was we're going to sacrifice this whole animal and then the whole animal um, is like burned in a pit versus later uh, especially when you start to see in Tibet, which was going to be an area where scarcity could be more of an issue at times, where you put all of your food um, on the altar, it's blessed, there becomes this whole religious idea that um, all of the spirits and the gods absorb the um, like the positivity and the sac of the sacrifice, and then it's blessed and you feed it to your entire congregation and everyone partakes in this. Nothing is wasted in that sense. I remember, um, just as an anecdote, one of the Tibetans I was living with for a, um, I did a summer, it was like a language intensive. And so we were living with a number of um, native Tibetans who basically just introduced us to everything about the culture. And we'd cook with them and they, we kept an altar in the house. And so they made um, kapska, which is a really, really delicious fried dough. Like, it literally is just dough that's been fried and dipped in sugar. We all know what that tastes like. <laughs> but it's made out of um, usually barley flour, because that is what the Tibetans use, is barley flour. And so we made, like, whole batches of these, and they showed us how to make the certain knots that they have. And then we put a number on the altar. And some of them we took almost immediately after we said some prayers, and we ate them ourselves. But some got left on the altar for, like, a week. And I remember at the end of that week, the number, the, a few of our Tibetan teachers had no problem eating the stale ones that have been sitting on the altar for that week, 
Whereas some of us tried them and we're like, these are not really edible anymore. <laughs> so it becomes, food can say a lot more, um, especially with your religion and with your culture. And for me, when I say culture, I almost feel like religion is tied implicitly in this. Whether or not you have an organized religion, culture is your belief system in, in the world. And religion, however formal or, or informal it is, is what your people in your world believe in and what you need to get your players to buy into or not buy into, if depending on your story. Um, if you look at religion, like from modern to ancient religion, there's a lot of uh, ritual around consumption, cons consuming of things, consuming, you know, from, you know, consuming the sacrificial animal to consumption of the enemy to consumption of the, the body and blood of Christ, you know, it's all some of it is symbolic and we hope that most of it now is symbolic and it's not actual you know people parts but consuming and the act of eating is linked so close to our uh our belief systems because it's necessary for life so that ritualization of consumption is uh to the point where you know in some cultures men and women can't eat at the same table they can't drink at the same table they can't sit at the same table um, it goes to the the men only bars in in various cultures. Uh, it goes to the ritualization of of holidays and how they have been some of them taken from other religions and then made to be part of acceptable religions. So, you know, we religion is a is always a a very touchy subject for some people, but it's also the, like I said it before, like the human animal craves something to explain the unknown and when we also want to feel like part of the group so then religion is often used for good or bad to combine the group together into a into a larger group that then can explain the unknown together or have a belief system together and those things that we do is like when we break bread together like when we have a communal communal event that communal event becomes ritualized and then becomes a holiday you know a hundred years later so these things all started in some way that's linked to the survival of that of that group of people and that's how you can then link it back to your to your worlds whether it's you know a board game where you have to like eat as much food on the board as much as possible or it's a, a rpg or a larp or a written story or animation or whatever you can make it that much richer by understanding that connection um, in terms of holidays in, I think, like examples, there's a lot of them. Um, you'd mentioned the fact that Christmas ends up being this kind of ubiquitous um, practice throughout cultures. Um, I know for me, I remember, I remember years ago, um, a high fantasy game that had no Christian elements whatsoever you had a group of people who were just insisting that we have like Christmas style events and wanted to include things like Santa. And, I'm just, and I remember it took me so out of game and out of character to deal with that because it wasn't an earth-based, you know, it wasn't like a post-apocalyptic world or an earth-based into the future. I was like, well, we could just do like a winter celebration of some kind and kind of cover a lot of this, or we could take a historic, element or something like mm -hmm. base it on something that happened within the world's history and play that 
and still get that. Let's we all want to we all want to you know celebrate Christmas with one another, right? We all want to celebrate the winter holidays with our friends when we're hanging out in the woods in our silly costumes. But let's do it in a way that makes sense in the actual world that improves our understanding of the world we're trying to evoke and um, bring to life. Diegetic. There's a there's a term in film that's diegetic and non-diegetic, mm-hmm. and so to do non-diegetic would be that stepping out of this doesn't work here. Yeah. Like all along the watchtower. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of the Christian holidays that we celebrate now were taken from pagan pagan religions and pagan ceremonies because when Christianity came to to the the uh, British Isles, that was a, a large part of what was going on there, so they absorbed it like the Borg. You know, <laughs> we absorbed you and take the best parts, and now you're one of us. I was thinking it was more of a how-do-you-do-fellow-kids moment. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, but we, we forget that what came before Christmas was a winter holiday or a celebration or, or winter solstice or whatever, and even the terminology of winter on an alien planet does it do the same thing that that we expect it to do and a lot of these holidays at that time period were designed to get people through the long winter or through that that dark and very cold time period where they didn't have you know pokemon go or they didn't have (laughs) you know a refrigerator with food or a microwave to microwave their popcorn so they didn't have these things so a lot of ritual that's built into these holidays is from a cultural perspective to hold communities together and a lot of religion that comes out of those things are based on the necessity of those cultures in that time period that we're just holding on to hundreds of years later. Yeah. You remember the old uh, uh, little folk rhyme, you know, peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, peas porridge in the pot nine days old. It's like, well, you know, if that's all you got to eat and, you know, it's going to be three months before spring eat your goddamn peas porridge and like it mm-hmm. all of these things like that we say sometimes we have no idea where they came out you know that saying like throw the baby out with the bath water mm-hmm. you know that like back in the day when there wasn't a lot of water the dad would wash first mm-hmm. there, was, there wasn't a lot of access to clean water mm-hmm. dad would wash first then mom would wash first then every child would wash until the baby and at that point that, that water is pretty nasty and you can't see through it like, and, and it might be opaque so when they're talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, it's because you want to check, make sure your kid's not in there before you toss that water out. So we use a lot of this, 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 these words and these, these organized like rituals because that's what we've always done. But where they came from are very specific things. Did you have a question? Yeah, I wonder if you could talk about how um, a culture or a state or a society that is tyrannical and oppressive would intersect with things like holidays and, and, and cuisine and, and that sort of, and how that might be reflected in a fictional fiction. Yeah, that's actually, that actually gives me a good segue to something that I meant to talk about earlier, and I, um, I stop talking a lot. <laughs> but um, one of the things that comes to mind is the idea of high and low cuisine. And this is something when you look at a lot of cultures I mean, I almost want to say every every culture that that I have studied so far, you have you have social stratification of food. So, in something like that scenario, your elite are going to be eating your elaborate food, your imported food, 
the food that is rare, the food that takes time that, say, only servants or those who are slaves are creating, are making, that have the time to do so. Your lower classes are going to be eating simple things, things that are readily available, things that have been sitting in a pot for a week, because that's something that still actually happens in the Caribbean. They, they will start a meal on the stove and you just add to it over time and you keep it bubbling, like for about a week's time. And you just keep it going. <laughs> yep. So there's, there's a difference there. Um, and so that is important to keep in mind because food ends up being a cultural and um, societal like class barrier. Um, you also often will see that elites will keep certain things for themselves and deprive it of um, their minority groups, uh, of the lower classes and things like that. The king's dear. Exactly, exactly. And in terms of holidays, um, and you can see this certainly in, um, in real life analogs as well, your holidays end up being things that support, it's tyrannical, the state, right? You supplant any sort of um, indigenous communal holidays with ones that commemorate great battles that are the birthdays of the leaders you're supposed to be um, revering above all else and often finding ways to make illegal practices that would go against the ideas of the state. Um, and I think you can um, say a lot with very few words to describe that because again, we're all familiar with these things. Like I know we're not sitting up here telling anybody anything like that they don't know about when they're reading the news every day. But it's important to keep these levels of nuances important when we're creating these worlds because we can tie into everybody's thoughts on this with a few descriptive words. And a few ways to show them, this was something that um, was talked about in Queer World Building, about how, um, how was it created, like, I'm, I'm suddenly, I lost it, I lost it. You want to, oh, no, no, this was something from Mechanical Atmosphere, that's why I was, I was blanking, but it tied into something from okay. Queer World Building. Um, mechanical Atmosphere, I was in a panel earlier, and we're talking about how when you create your mechanics, you want to evoke a feeling. It's the same thing with your world. You, you want to set the stage for what you want your players to feel and interact with, and you need to create that world and set some kind of boundaries. And these are the ways you can set boundaries that aren't like, you have to do this, you have to do that. You create that, that evocative world around them. And then in terms of language, I mean, we see it all the time, the difference between the classes and their language options. Um, you can see it in different, uh, uh, geographical locations, who says pop, who says soda, um, in, you know, I will not, you know, recreate my New Jersey accent for you because I've spent many years getting rid of it, but you can tell where people are from, and when you can tell where they're from, you can make an assumption about them, and the class, subs, so, um, but you can also, you can use that to your advantage when you're creating those worlds, and you can just, you have a tyrannical uh, uh, society, they speak a certain way. They are of a, of a higher class than the, than the, the, the lower class. Um, and that's often depicted in, uh, you know, a, the, the fake British accent, uh, thick Cockney accent that like every peasant seems to have ever um, because of the difference in language in, in the UK and as an English speaking culture. Um, and we see it in, in, 
Like I tell my students, don't ever write to me in text speech when you write me an email. Write me an actual email with actual words. And they, they look at me and they think that I'm just like, just being a jerk. And I'm like, I'm totally being a jerk. But I also don't want you to get in the habit of not thinking about who you're talking to when you're talking to them. So just like we have to think about who we're talking to when we're talking to them, when you have your language play a part, the, the, the way people speak in your world will also give a feeling to the audience about who they are in that world. Just also an example, if I, I don't know. Um, that I've always found fascinating is that uh, if you're talking about tyrannical people and if you're just building a world based on how humans have been known to act, almost every major empire ever, once it has created a particularly high ruling class, has adopted literally a different language, usually from somewhere they conquered that they consider superior, culturally though not militarily. Mm -hmm. uh, the Romans uh, spoke ancient Greek, uh, spoke high Greek. Uh, you know, China had Mandarin. Uh, Japanese nobility often learned Mandarin. Uh, the Russian high court would only speak in, in Versailles French, um, in like high Parisian French. Uh, it, was all, it was a sign of that further separation. Mm -hmm. I mean, Latin, and, and just like simple, Latin used in Catholicism. Yeah. Like that, that was an immediate separation from your religious elite to your everyday person. Well, also the education, like yeah. Latin, uh, learning a dead language showed that you were of a, of a certain class that you could go and learn these languages in like the classics uh, and show <laughs> that you were, you know, of this higher uh, str like status than someone else who was not allowed to do that. <coughs> Just, yeah. And also uh, Latin becoming the language of the church also became the language of law. That mm -hmm. It was your way of making sure. Well, see, it says it says right here, clear as it can be, so long as you speak Latin, you can read Latin fluently, um, and that was a way to make sure, particularly when you're talking about the tyrannical structure, to make sure that gap, that air gap, existed between the oppressed and, the, and those in charge. Yeah. Um, sorry for a late continuing tangent, um, but no tangents. A cool after effect of that that shows up like centuries later that I want to see more in fiction, where like. It's been hundreds and hundreds of years since the aristocracy of England spoke French. But if you look at our language, we still have uh, the fancy words for something come from French, and the normal words for something come from uh, uh, come from like Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon, um, yeah. You see it in uh, in food, like cow versus beef. Yeah. yeah. Where when you prepare it by a fancy chef, you use French, and when you don't, it's just it's something low. You, you could even look at it in the sense of target versus target. Like, <laughs> it, that, yeah. Well, and, and even off of that, coming off food and thinking about French, what we consider fancy foods like in the world is because the French kind of established food as a whole discourse and many other countries adopted it. So what we consider high foods are actually based on certain French techniques. Doesn't necessarily mean they're better, but like if you ever heard bouillabaisse. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but think about in your world though, if, if you're suddenly like, oh, I wanna, I really like the idea of a consomme. It's a clear broth soup. Would you have the word consomme if you don't have a French speaking country somewhere? No, you would probably call it something else. So I think that that's an important thing tying back to food too. Like words that we just use every day 
um, for things that, that we use every day wouldn't yeah. exist. Especially in Americanized English. Mm. Because we have we have influences from French, from Anglo-Saxon English, but also from from Spanish and German and other languages that we've adopted and brought brought in, I can't speak <laughs> brought into our our everyday nomenclature that we we name things, and even going back to what you were saying about Latin as the the language of the church and language of law is also the language of science, also stratifying the difference between the doctors and the rest of us. They were speaking another language. Well, I don't the early know. scientists were monks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read Gene Wolfe's Earth of the New Sun books? Mm -mm. They're set like millions of years in the future. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he has the conceit that he's translating them from the future languages. So, like, the colloquial language is English because that's what he's writing in. But like when he wants to sort of simulate certain ancient languages, he'll use Latin or Greek or sometimes Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, and he says, of course, they aren't actually that. Um, and you know, it, it, it's a really fun con fun conceit. And he also talks about how like the architecture of the future start you can start to see it today if you know where to look and things like that. Hmm. Um, and one of the reasons I mentioned the. Battlestar Galactica, you know, using all along the Watchtower. And one of the reasons why, for me, that really broke the show is I was like, okay, that song scans in English, but like, are they really speaking English like we do on this show? Like, because it's one thing to be like, of course they're speaking English because they're filming it for for our audience, but like, if they have a song from a Bob Dylan that works the same. How does that? <laughs> There's um. I gotta. I'm gonna tell you one last brief what, story. One thing, because we do have only a couple yeah. minutes, but I think we're up against a break. So I have another. I have another panel. You have another panel. Yeah. Well, I can stick around, and I'm also happy to set up consultations with anybody. I'm free. Anybody who wants can have a free 30 minute consultation, which basically means we sit around and talk about your project, and then we see if there's a way that we can interface about it. That's it. So feel free to schedule it. But yeah, say you're... Uh, one quick, really funny story. I used to live in uh, Columbus, Ohio, where the Ohio State University Buckeyes were. And at the time that I was there, it was very popular to have um, like tattoos and shirts all in Japanese kanji. And I was walking behind uh, this, this big football player and he was wearing a hat with a Japanese symbol on the back uh, over a Buckeye, which is a, is a thing... It's a nut. Yeah. And, but they're like, they're the Buckeyes. And I was with this friend of mine who spoke Japanese and read it and wrote it. And she was laughing. And I'm like, why are you laughing at that guy? He's going to beat us up. And she was like, she's, so she waited to, for him to walk away a little further. And she's like, in Japanese, there is no word for Buckeye. That is actually literally translated to little ground nut. So the context that it was being used in, this is what happens when you appropriate without understanding and without understanding what that translation is going to happen. You need to, to do the work to understand what that actually means in context before you can just apply it to your world. And with that, I gotta run to my next Go run. panel. So. And, and I wanna leave you with a positive note because I feel like we said, we've just basically said in your world building you have to think about absolutely everything. And that's, <laughs> yes. that's really overwhelming. The, the point is, and this is something that was brought up in queer uh, world building earlier, there are choices that you have to make as you go forward. 
And maybe you don't figure out, you know, all the climates that every one of the people you're using look at. Maybe you're not figuring out, you know, the last 300 years of history for your world. But it's important just to keep in mind these sorts of evolutions and how these can inform your, your reader, your player, and create your world. Just find the ones that evoke what you want to portray and use those to your advantage so you can avoid a lot of exposition so you can avoid a lot of direct analogs and create a real world for your people. And on that, don't use things just because. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. And if anyone wants to take them over there are my postcards, they have my contact info for Feast in Time. Um, you can also... I'm going to go right out there, and if you want to compare schedules, we can sit down and find a time to talk. No, it's all just states. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I actually means I have no idea. I woke up with it. Oh, dear. Did you get to hear from him last night? Oh. I, when I saw that, I 